Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. If you've been tuning into our show recently, you know that my goal this season has been to introduce you to some guests whose work falls outside the classic discussion of leadership. And my not-so-subtle intention has been to help broaden your understanding of yourself and the world around you in hopes that your new learnings would pay uncommon dividends in your leadership of people. You recall that our very first guest of the season, Kieran Sataya, came to remind us, this of course was the title of his book, that life is hard. And I suppose my overriding ambition this year has been to help you most successfully navigate that. As life today seems to be becoming more complex and unpredictable by the minute, it sure would be nice if we had a crystal ball to see into the future. And while that, of course, doesn't really exist, there are trends occurring that some informed observers know with reasonable certainty are poised to impact our future lives. And today, our guest is one of the best at spotting those things, and the title of his new bestseller, The Future Normal, How We Will Live, Work, and Thrive in the Next Decade, pretty much sums up the theme of today's episode. Rohit Bhargava is the founder of the non-obvious company and is widely considered one of the most original thinkers on marketing disruption and innovation in the world. He is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of five books and teaches marketing and storytelling at Georgetown University. Rohit was also a recent speaker at the South by Southwest conference in Austin, Texas. Having a view into the future is always valuable, of course, but there are a few specific reasons why I wanted Rohit to join us. First, he doesn't see technology as something to be feared or resisted, but rather as a tool for creating a better world for all of us. He optimistically acknowledges that there will be challenges along the way, but believes with the right mindset and approach, we can navigate those challenges and emerge stronger and more connected than ever before. Speaking of connection, Rohit, like many of us, recognizes that while technology has the power to bring us together in new and exciting ways, it can also be isolating and alienating if not used properly. So I'm going to ask him for some strategies on remaining connected at a time when most of us are spending record amounts of time on our devices. So what's life going to be like in the months and near years ahead? Let's welcome Rohit to the podcast, and we're going to find out. Thank you for joining us, Rohit. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, I want to start off by asking you a very big and broad question. Just coincidentally, I recently had Gabriella Rosen Kellerman on the podcast, and in her book, it's called Tomorrow Mind, which she wrote with Martin Seligman, She introduced five psychological powers that they believe have become essential to thriving in the future workplace. And one of those five powers is what they called prospection, which is language that I'd never heard before. And prospection is the forward-looking ability to emotionally and logistically prepare for change before it arrives. So as I'm reading your book, which just came right after reading theirs, it made me want to start our conversation by asking you, how does one start to think like a futurist? Like, how did you learn to do this? And what's your best advice on how we might all learn how to observe trends? I'm kidding. Read the tea leaves and better anticipate things that could come. Well, I mean, I think that what most futurists do is they're sort of puzzle makers. They're solving 
for the question of what's going to matter in the future by paying attention to the present. And usually the foundation of what's going to change in the future is is already happening right now. And so what anyone who does this type of work will probably say is you got to start with the now before you can anticipate the future. And what I've tried to do in my work in this world of futurism is to try and anticipate what I call the near future. So sometimes I'll even call myself a near futurist because there are people who do this type of work who think about what's going to happen in 2050. And that's the time span that they're thinking about. And it's usually geopolitical futurism, like this country will combine with this country or take over this one. And and that's not really my focus. What I've spent most of my time doing coming from the world of consumer behavior, marketing and advertising is I've tried to really pay attention to behavior, what people do. And when you're leading any sort of organization, I think that the cues from that behavior help you figure out your strategy for reaching those people and for influencing those people, which is ultimately what we're trying to do no matter what business we're in, where they're either trying to persuade them to do something or buy something or behave in some way. And I think that that's what is at the heart of this type of work. You use the word cues, which I love. Are you a broad reader? What are your sources of data? How do you aggregate? what you think might be the future. So in other words, what advice do you have for all of us in terms of how we might become more competent in this? I am a pretty widespread reader in the sense that, first of all, every week I have a, I can call it a habit now because I've been doing it for six years. (laughs) I have a habit every week of reading stories and reading headlines of stories and reading full stories with the intent of finding the five most interesting, what I would call non-obvious stories of the week. And I take those five stories and I publish them in my weekly newsletter, which is called the Non-Obvious Insights Newsletter that comes out every Thursday. And I've been writing that for the last six years. And so the discipline of doing that every week, knowing that I have a deliverable to finish and publish every Thursday has really given me this habit of always looking for interesting and fascinating stories. So when you when you ask, you know, what is the thing we need to do? Well, first of all, it's creating some sort of habit like that for ourselves. And it doesn't need to be, I mean, I'm not telling you to go off and <laughs> write a newsletter, but the point is that reading and sourcing all of this information is a little bit like making a commitment to working out, right? I mean, you have to turn it into a habit where it doesn't feel like, oh man, like, you know, somebody else told me I have to do this, so I'm doing it. Like, it has to fit into your routine. And for me, sourcing and reading information has kind of become that. So I'm always looking for new stories. And it's not just reading articles, it's also watching videos, it's it's seeing documentaries, it's going to see movies, it's having conversations because I am commonly on the road speaking at events and so I'm always talking to people. So some of the inspiration comes from people and the stories that I get from the people and some of it comes from the things that I read. That's really interesting and I, I had no idea you did that. So this language of non-obvious, how did you come up with that? So in other words, how did you narrow your focus? I'm going to interpret this and you can tell me if I'm completely off base. The idea that you're trying to see things that aren't obvious, but more specifically, you're trying to extract the things that aren't on the surface or what most people don't see. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I think I came to the language sort of how an entrepreneur comes to an idea for a business, which is they are either frustrated or they're trying to solve for a problem that they see in the world. 
And for me, the problem I saw in the world was that there was just too many obvious ideas. People were just sharing the same thing. It was what everyone was saying. It was cliche. And I just got frustrated, especially when it came to trends, because I would read a trend report that was like the five hot trends for 2024. And like one of the trends would be the metaverse. I'm like, that's not a trend. That's just something that exists that you just put onto paper or AI is going to be the hot trend. Well, you know, that's also just a technology. Like, what does it mean? Like, what are you going to do that's different? Like, there was no direction to any of these so-called trend reports. And so I launched Non-Obvious, first of all, as a trend report out of frustration because I was just tired of reading all of this stuff that was, I mean, pardon my French, but basically bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to come up with something that I felt like was more insightful, that was based on bringing things together from multiple industries, and that actually had some thoughtfulness behind it. It's wonderful. You know, one of the things that you made me think about is something that I've always believed in my career as a former senior leader. I saw a lot of people at very senior levels waiting to see what other people were thinking, waiting to see what other people were doing, as opposed to thinking about what the circumstances were for the business and trying to do, to use your language, the non-obvious And some of that takes some courage to do something that not everybody is doing because you're an outlier and it may not succeed. But I think that's what leadership is all about. And that's really the tact that you've taken with your work. So there's an interesting parallel there. So before we move on, give us a couple of examples of something right now that strike you as just being patently not obvious. Well, I think that one of the challenges that we tried to do when we were writing the book was identify things that maybe people were thinking about, but putting it into a different lens. So here's a totally random idea. So psychedelics, Mm -hmm. which for a long time had a lot of stigma attached to them. Like people would go on trips. It was like a good trip or a bad trip. Like, you know, we kind of thought about the people who took LSD or took these psychedelics in a certain way. And now what's fascinating is there's a whole body of research and healthcare professionals that are looking at psychedelics as treatment for certain conditions. And what they're finding, the early results are showing that if you have a condition such as clinical depression and you use psychedelics in a single treatment over the course of six or eight hours, you can permanently rewire the brain's pathways and cure depression. So it's actually a cure for something that people have been suffering for and taking medication for for years and years. So think about the disruptiveness of that finding being applied on a wider wider spread. And you start to see the potential of some of these really interesting categories of research, categories of exploration that will now result in some big questions and some big disruption of very specific industries, but also of people's lives. And I think that that's a great example because what it says is that there's something that, I mean, it's not like I'm the first person to ever have written about psychedelics. Yeah, Michael Pollan has done that recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But there's more attention on it now. And Michael Pollan's a great example. He did a whole documentary. People started paying attention to it. And now it's become a whole category. And there's a lot of opportunity attached to that. So from a leadership perspective, What leaders need to pay attention to is what is happening out there in the world and what are the potential threats and opportunities that that's going to create for their business, whether they happen to be in the world of healthcare or not. So we're not really talking about Michael Pollan here, but he's famous enough that I think most people know him. So we had this historical drugs are bad for you, particularly narcotics and 
LSD and the kinds of things that we're suddenly looking at as potential therapy for PTSD and depression, et cetera. What would make somebody go back and take a second look at this? So I'm curious about the motivation of somebody who's doing the research when there's such a stigma against these these drugs in the first place. Well, first of all, I think it's people who think more innovatively, right? Mm-hmm. That's where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a whole team that was doing research that are basically former cancer doctors. And what they found is that they just had all of these patients who were terminal, who they were trying to help, and they hit a wall. Like, they just couldn't help them anymore because they were already going to die. They couldn't cure cancer. And the only thing they could try and do was make their quality of life better for the time that they had left. So they decided to start experimenting with psychedelics in that case. And I think that what is interesting about something like this is that it starts to lead you towards knowledge where people say, oh, I didn't know that, right? Like if I say the early research shows that psychedelics can cure depression, oh, I didn't know that. Psychedelics are not addictive, you know? Oh, I didn't know that. Like, so yes, it's drugs, but it's not drugs where you're starting it and now you're going to be like hooked on it and addicted to it. It's drugs that you take one time and it's mm-hmm. permanently rewiring things in your brain. And that is a very different usage of quote unquote drugs. So it starts to change people's perception of what it actually is. So what are ways of stimulating that kind of curiosity from a leadership standpoint? I'm fascinated by what you're saying and I'm trying to pull out like the application. How does somebody think like this? Well, I think the first thing that I would say to any leader is look outside your industry. Because I think that historically leaders, and particularly as you get higher up in an organization, are quite bad at that. Because they've become rewarded by their deep level of industry knowledge. I mean, it's what they lead with. You know, I'm, I'm an mm-hmm. expert in such mm-hmm. and such. I've been in this industry for X number of years. That's where they find their professional identity in their expertise in an industry. And the problem is that can lead some people towards is tunnel vision Mm -hmm. towards only their industry. And to literally, I mean, I've been in so many conversations where someone, the first thing they say is, well, show me that you have experience in my industry because that's the only thing that matters to me. And the challenge is for me, I'm usually, if I'm brought into an organization, it's usually because they want help thinking more innovatively. And the first thing that I have to break down for them is, well, if you're going to think more innovatively, you can't just look at the most innovative company in your industry and say, we want to be like them. You have to be willing to look outside your industry for innovative ideas and thinking that could perhaps be applied inside your industry. Thank you. That's wonderful advice and exactly what I was hoping to get to. So you have this quote in your book from somebody named Jim Dater. I'm not familiar with him, but you know him as a renowned futurist. So he's in your league and he said that any useful idea about the future should appear to be ridiculous. So that made me curious. What's the takeaway there? Well, I think that part of it, and it's fascinating because we talk about that quote early in the book. And what it speaks to is this idea that many people have probably heard in the cliche that any technology that's sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from science fiction, right? Which is Mm -hmm. a well-known quote, but also kind of a cliche now. And Jim goes on to write, and what's really interesting is eventually the thing that seemed ridiculous becomes normal. And that's kind of what we were writing about. And we sort of close with that in the book because it's really interesting that something that starts off seeming ridiculous becomes an everyday thing, becomes something that we all use. And oftentimes we don't realize it. You might remember 
the moment where you were when something momentous happened in the world, right? Mm -hmm. You probably don't remember the first time that autocorrect changed your typing for T-E-H to T-H-E. Like, do you remember the first time autocorrect fixed your typo? Mm -hmm. No. But now you're frustrated when it doesn't. (laughs) You're like, well, I have to go back and fix this myself? Like, why didn't autocorrect fix this for me? Because we expect it to work. And I think that that's the definition of normal. Like, that's normal for us. The autocorrect is normal. Well, how does that happen, though? Well, I I think it happens by fitting into our lives in a way that makes it easier and solves a need that sometimes we realize we have and sometimes we don't necessarily realize we have. And there's a deeply human element of it because the technology and the innovation that, that does solve that type of need isn't uncanny. It isn't noticeable, necessarily. It's beneficial. But what's the process? So sometimes, like the autocorrect, I mean, Microsoft just builds it into its Word product and all of a sudden it's changing what we've written. And we go, oh, that was helpful. Thank you. And so we just kind of move on. But there's other social changes. I mean, this is a leadership-focused podcast that we're really arguing that there needs to be fundamental change. But we've got resistance to it because... We have over 150 years of managing the way we've traditionally managed. And so you've got a lot of inertia to go up against. So how do you as a futurist influence people to not just see these new ideas, but actually take them and apply them? Well, I think part of it is by having enough discipline to not get too academic, with it. Hmm. And I like to describe myself as an occasional professor because that's kind of what I am. Like I do teach at Georgetown, but only every once in a while. (laughs) I'm not a full-time academic. And the reason why that's important to me is as a practitioner, as somebody who's worked with a lot of companies and come from a consulting background, the idea and the research is not as important to me as the application of it. Mm -hmm. And so when I do these talks and when I share these ideas, I always have what I call stealable ideas attached to them. So what is the idea that you can take and use to do something with instead of just finding it interesting and filing it away in your head as something that is fascinating? The book is written in the same way. Like every chapter has these actionable lessons and tips and things like that to help people apply what they're reading about to their own situations. You're very good at anticipating what I'm trying to extract in this conversation. So thank you. Early in your book, you have a co-author, Henry Cotinho Martin, and both of you seem very optimistic about the future, which is sometimes hard to do right now. But I found this not only encouraging, but when you just consider climate change and melting ice caps and sea level rise, some things we already know for certain about the future have a lot of us concerned. And so what specifically gives you hope that we can look forward to solutions to problems like these? Well, I think the number one thing that gives both Henry and I hope is that everywhere we looked for an example of something positive happening in a certain space, whether it was food production or climate change or sustainable products or supply chain development, we found an example. It wasn't like we had to go in and say, oh, we wish someone was doing X, but we couldn't find it. We always found it. And so what that led us towards is asking you know, changing the framing question for the book. Mm-hmm. So the framing question we started with was, what's the future going to be 
what's going to happen in the future, right? Pretty natural place to start for a book about the future. <laughs> right. By futures. Yeah. And through the process of writing it, I think the question changed to what if things go right? Because we found so many people doing things and so many futurists say, well, here's the scenarios, right? Here's the doomsday scenario and here's the upside scenario, right? And by presenting them both, what they're essentially saying is we got a 50-50 shot, like 50% it's going to go to shit, 50% is going to be good. And we didn't want to ask our question or frame it in that way. We wanted to say, well, what if the things go right? Like, what if the person who we want to succeed, who is going to take the thing that eats the microplastics out of the ocean, what if they succeed? What if it works? And the broader question is, what would it take for it to work? And that's why I think the book was so optimistic, because what it was saying is there are people who have solutions to these things. There are companies doing this right now. And what the world needs is for those people to get attention, to get funding, to get investment, to get support, to get visibility. And this book was meant to champion those people. Where did you cultivate that instinct or the idea of approaching this from a truly optimistic point of view? Because in other words, you hear about global warming and you think, well, we're screwed, right? There are already parts of Florida that are being subsumed by the ocean. We kind of go, our weather's changing all over the world. And I guess this is the end of it. But you're approaching it from an entirely different perspective, which is to say, no, there's actually things that are happening that could offset this, fix this, remedy this, make things even better. How did you learn that as a person? Because I think it's a wonderful attribute. To be honest, I think part of it may be my personality. I tend to be more positive just in the way that I, I see things. But it's not positivity based on naivety, right? It's not based mm -hmm. on shutting my eyes or shutting my ears or, or Henry doing the same thing. It's not based on us shutting out the negatives and pretending like that doesn't exist. But for every story you have of a, another hurricane that creates flooding somewhere, you know, there's a story of one dude in the middle of a forest who planted 80,000 trees. And now 10 years later, like his one person's work is a huge forest. We sometimes see those stories and it's like, oh, that's a feel good thing. But like, I think there's a human quality that sort of dismisses that as sort of, eh, that's like a one-time thing. But when we see the stories that are much more negative, we're like, oh, this is happening all the time. <laughs> and I think that that is part of the challenge. I mean, one of the things we wrote in the book is that we build the future that we imagine. Mm. And if we imagine the future is going to be a dystopian disaster, then that's what we're going to build. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, one of the cool examples that you give in the book is what I want to talk about now. And let me set it up that the most recent Edelman Trust Barometer found that three quarters of global respondents said that they worry about digitally altered images, words, videos being used as a weapon to undermine society. So they show the president of the country saying something that he didn't say and it gets everybody alarmed, that kind of an example. So 75% were concerned. I'm not honestly sure what the other quarter of people are thinking because that could be a huge problem. But your book says a remedy may already be available. So tell us about True Pick as one example of why you're optimistic about the future. Well, so True Pick is one example of a range of companies that are essentially working to develop technology that can identify when something has been faked and allow you to know that it's been faked in real time. Like the whole debunking thing later 
is not that useful because you already believed something that was fake and then you deep it's like the newspaper publishing the retraction three days later like okay great but like the story already went out and it was mm-hmm. wrong so it's not that it is debunking it in the moment so that's what TruePic is trying to do they're trying to identify whether an image has been faked or manipulated or photoshopped in the moment and interestingly enough the applications of it in part are being driven by industry so there's insurance for example they want to be able to know if somebody has doctored a image of the damage to their car when they're putting in their insurance claim. So there's a whole business reason why insurance would would want to know whether you're faking the image to pretend like there's more damage to your car than there is, right? So there's a business case for it. But also what's interesting is that there are more and more startups that are doing this on very specific and interesting spaces. So, for example, I was at South by Southwest and I was listening to startup pitches. I often listen to startup pitch competitions. And one of the startups there was a company that has a platform that can immediately be installed into your web browser and will sit alongside the browser. And if you're reading reviews for a product on like Amazon, it can rate whether it thinks that the review was written by AI or whether it was written by a real person and give you a percentage rating to say, you know, this review is probably generated by technology or this review was written by a real person. So that now you can get this barometer right immediately to decide whether you should trust a review or not. And that's the sort of technology that's coming right now to help us validate what's real and what isn't. It's very reassuring to know that there's technology that could offset something that seems like it's already being, you know, we're already seeing manipulated images. And knowing that that could be tamped down or eliminated is just really a positive, encouraging thing. And that's, again, part of the optimism from your book. Over the last few weeks, I'm asking the same question of people, and I think you have a different optic into it. But based on everything that you know today, what do you think is going to be the overall future of remote working? Do you think companies are going to inevitably force people back to the office? Is that ship sailed? Are we going to be working hybrids? Will most offices be reconceived and redesigned in order to bring people back and foster connection and connectivity? And I guess the other piece of this that I think you'd be uniquely prepared to answer would be, are there advances in technology companies that will enhance virtual meetings? The first part of that, will companies force people to come back to the office? Yeah, it's already happening. Mm -hmm. And so is the future of virtual work going to be more hybrid work? Yeah, I think it is going to be because not only... Is it beneficial for companies that they've realized to have people come back and collaborate in person? People themselves have realized that in some cases it's beneficial. Like you don't come up with the same ideas together on a virtual brainstorm that you do if you're in person. And that's kind of a quantifiable fact. Is it? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. When you look at certain industries. I mean, everybody's been in meetings that didn't need to happen, right? And we all want to eliminate those. And we don't just want to make them happen on Zoom instead of in person. We don't want them at all because they're useless. They're a waste of our time. But that's not what we're talking about. Human collaboration results in solutions to many problems and results in creativity. And it's people building on one another's work in a team dynamic that is very difficult right now or impossible to recreate digitally. And so if you want that type of collaboration in certain roles, like you need to bring people together to do it. And I think that people themselves have realized that and companies have realized that. So I think there are some roles where companies are going to require people to come back in. They already have. 
and they're seeing benefits from that. And people are not doing it unhappily. They're doing it because they realize that there's benefit to it. So I do think that's going to continue to happen. And I think that companies, ultimately, they just want the best work out of their people and they want to motivate them and have them stay loyal and not resign and leave for somewhere else, right? And I think that creating an optimal work environment in that way is the only way to do that. So if people feel like they're doing something because they're forced to do it because of a small-minded corporate culture, they're going to leave. But if they see the benefit and they're like, oh, I see why they want me to do this and it makes sense, then they'll stay. So does that lead into an intentional redesign of office space? Do you see that happening already on a widespread basis where companies are you know, eliminating the cubes and the open offices and creating lots of meeting spaces and individual places for people to hang out? Is that happening? Um, I don't know, because I think that, I mean, the ship has already sailed on the open office design. Like there was a time when offices had offices with doors and they were closed. And then everything kind of went open and people were like, well, I have no privacy and I can't do any meetings. And I think that some time ago, companies already realized that they need open office space and they also need like meeting space where people can close the door and do something private. And so I think a lot of workplaces are already designed for that. So do I think that there's a large scale shift in how office space needs to be designed for the future? I don't know. I think we already reached that point. Mm. Like, I think there are already plenty of workspaces that I know of, at least, where people can go and have the open work plan or get a closed office and work there if they need to. And then what about technology? Any advances, anything that would make virtual meetings more compelling? Yeah, incrementally. There's a lot of really cool stuff. We've been experimenting with virtual live translation. So you can have meetings with any colleague in any language. That's pretty cool. Hmm. Uh, and that's an advance, more lifelike collaboration tools, especially for meeting rooms where you can have virtual presences, telepresence, you know, even have kind of individual robots that move that have screens on them so that people can feel like they're there and they're moving and interacting. I mean, those sorts of things are going to continue. And for some people, they're going to be a lifeline. I mean, imagine somebody who has a disability who can't move around or can't be there physically, or remote team collaboration between countries where it's way too expensive to bring people together across multiple countries, not just somebody who doesn't feel like driving to work or doesn't want to brave the commute. Like Those are real instances where these are going to be the only alternative and they're going to get better and better. Changing subjects entirely, you write that one in four people will suffer from a mental health issue in their lifetime and that the cost of mental health problems in the global economy will reach $16 trillion in just the next six or seven years. So I'm just wondering, since you mentioned it, are there things that companies, and I suppose more specifically workplace leaders, should be doing to help elevate employee mental health and well-being? Like, should that be an intentional act? I think it has to be. Uh, I think it already is happening in that way. And it's having widespread beneficial effects for people. So everything from realizing that there are situations in life where people need more time or more support. So bereavement leave, for example, paternity or maternity leave, the idea that people need to take mental health uh, breaks, 
And even on a smaller scale, like meditation at work, like changing the way that we approach work, having breaks before we actually start meetings, like starting meetings five minutes after the hour so that people have a moment to reset their minds before going from one meeting to the next instead of just having a day full of meetings. Like all of these things are increasingly getting into the common office culture. And people are realizing that. And so it's no longer this sort of weird thing where it's like, oh, wait, you want to like start the meeting at 4.05 instead of 4 so that people have a mental break? Now people are like, oh, yeah, we know that that's a good idea because you need to let go of the last meeting before you go into the new one. So I do see a lot of evolution with that. So you're actually seeing that be pervasive in organizations. So it's not just the most enlightened organizations. It's not the Googles of the world that are... Uh, are I mean, it's hard to tell, right? I don't know that it's pervasive as in everyone gets it. Mm -hmm. Um, I do know that it's much more widespread and appreciated than just that one wacky tech office, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is what it used to be. Right. (laughs) That's kind of where I was going with it. But you just mentioned starting meetings five minutes after the hour. I'm thinking that's just one clever idea that people could take and use. And I'm thinking, why didn't we think of this a long time ago? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, look, I didn't come up with it. No, I I understand. But you're right. Like, a lot of these ideas are very small incremental changes. I mean, some of the things you mentioned, like, transform the office space and make it more like open. I mean, those are expensive, Mm -hmm. long-term things to do. Starting meeting five minutes later, that's not expensive or difficult. That's just intentional. Totally agree. In your book, since we're really talking about mental health here and well-being, connection is a big part of that. And we're spending record times in our lives on devices all day long. And so you emphasize connection. What are some of the strategies that you've learned, particularly when people work more of a hybrid schedule, to really elevate connection between teams and even just generally people within organizations? Honestly, this this is probably going to be a non-obvious key, but I mean, my entire (laughs) team is remote. Like we don't have an office. People are based all over. The thing that has helped them to collaborate and bond more is actually having met in person. (laughs) Like they know each other because they've met in person. They've had dinner together. They've had a drink together. And so they know each other as people. And they can collaborate remotely more effectively because they've met. Now, I realize in some cases that's just not possible. But I will tell you that from a team bonding and collaboration point of view, that has been really key. How often do you do that? Maybe twice a year. So you're leveraging virtual relationships by bringing people to connect twice a year. So have you found that that's sufficient for people to have trusting relationships and to be willing collaborators and to look out for one another? Is that enough time twice a year? That is the only time they meet in person, but they're constantly collaborating virtually, right? And yes, I have found that that is enough. Okay. Something that's very topical right now that I want to discuss with you is AI and specifically AI text generators you believe technology like this is going to actually be beneficial to us. It's going to reduce time and effort. But can you flesh this out and explain the most imminent impacts coming to our jobs and workplaces? I think it was Goldman Sachs that said that 300 million jobs could soon be automated. So if you put this technology into the hands of companies, are they going to be willing to just obliterate a bunch of jobs? Is that overblown? What are you seeing? 
I think that some jobs will be eliminated. I think that there is a whole new skill set that many people are going to have to adopt. And I think in the short term, it's going to be a little bit like, imagine you're on a turf field about to play soccer and it just rained. And some people have sneakers and some people have proper soccer shoes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The people with sneakers are going to go sliding around and not be able to make any hard cuts or play well. And the people with the proper soccer shoes are going to dominate and score. And I think that that is kind of the same thing that's going to happen with people who understand how to use these tools and people who don't. It's not that you couldn't go out on the field and still kick the ball around, but you're going to get run around circles by the people who have the skills and have the right tools and know how to use them. So that's what we're going to face in the short term. In the long term, I think that learning how to use these things is going to be normal, <laughs> right? And that's sort of what we wrote about. Like these things are seem like the deep future, but eventually they're just normal. Like we're going to be teaching kids in school how to use AI and they're going to understand that and they're going to understand what these tools can be used for and should be used for and you know some things that they shouldn't be used for. Well, let me pin down the Goldman Sachs numbers. So should people be concerned that this technology is going to be a tsunami that once companies understand its applications, that they're just going to say, well, we don't need these kinds of jobs anymore. And people are actually going to be overwhelmed by this technology. Is that going to happen? Is this going to be a natural transition where people will have plenty of time to learn it and develop and understand how to apply it and it's not going to harm them? What's the big picture here? Well, just to add some perspective here, right? The very same people who work at large, slow-moving companies who are frustrated that those companies are not innovative and don't do new things and you know that their new ideas get shot down, as soon as AI comes up, they're like, oh man, our company is going to move on this right away and fire like half of our workforce right away. How is that going to be possible? Like a company that has moved slow on every innovation, that is resistant to change, that is not innovative, is immediately going to turn around and start using AI for every job and fire tons of people? Like it doesn't make any sense. Well, but that's the fantasy. And that's why I wanted to ask you the question, because I think there's a lot of and there's going to be more. There's going to be more media that's going to say, you know, AI is coming for your job. And then, you know, I think you might even underestimate you know, a CFO who's looking at this and saying, hey, wait a minute, if we can eliminate 10,000 jobs because of this technology, that's going to drive up our profits. So we should take a real serious look at this. So they may have a greater incentive, even in a slow moving company, to enact technology that could do what you just said isn't likely to happen. Well, that's the thing, though, that when you roll out technology like this, it doesn't eliminate 10,000 jobs. It eliminates some jobs, but it creates new skill sets and you have to hire different people. So the fear shouldn't be we're going to lose this many people immediately, you know, all at once. The fear should be that what I do right now and the way that I do it could be obsolete, right, on an individual level. And if that is the case, then you're going to have to either train yourself to use these tools to be able to do what you do using the tools Because right now, AI doesn't just fully replace anybody. Somebody still has to give it prompts. Somebody still has to do something with it. It's a tool that allows you to do things, but somebody has to put information into it, right? And so if, for example, your job is to work for a company writing boring corporate blog posts, and that's your job which you need to deliver on, AI could help you do that job better if you learn how to use it. Or if you don't, AI could just replace you. 
And you know, I'm not trying to be flippant about it. What I'm saying is that individuals have a decision to make based on the work that they do and based on understanding what the potential is for AI. And if you understand the potential for it and choose to learn how to use it, it could help you to do the job that you're doing faster and better. So I'm sorry to beat this point here, but it's a real number and it's a very large number and I've actually seen even bigger numbers. But where does this 300 million jobs come from? Are they saying job obliteration or are they saying AI is going to supplement what people do here? So how do we interpret that number is really what I'm asking you. I mean, any numbers like that are speculation, right? So somebody is making a guess as to what's going to happen. And when you start to look in more detail at exactly what industries are going to happen, a lot of times the number is the sexy thing that goes out in the research and Mm -hmm. says, well, this many jobs are going to be either disrupted or lost, and there's no corresponding research to say, well, how many jobs are going to be created as a result? And so anytime you hear about, for example, unemployment, at the same time, you have to look at like how many jobs are available but unfilled, which is a huge number right now. And so what that means is that there's oversupply in one space and undersupply in another space. And so macroeconomically, what that means is there's opportunity. Now, That doesn't mean everyone's able to equally appreciate or take advantage of it because some people don't have the situation or or the ability or the opportunity to learn those different skills to be able to be more marketable for the other thing. Sometimes it's geographic, right? Like one region is depressed and doesn't have the opportunity and another region does and people don't have the resources to move. So there's a lot of things that go into something like that. It's really hard to be like, well, this is going to affect 300 million people, like the entire population of America. I don't know. I mean, those numbers are speculation. Okay. What I'm hearing is they're not alarming you, which is probably the most beneficial takeaway from this. I don't mean to sound like I'm not alarmed. What I do mean to sound like is that I'm skeptical of anyone who comes up with numbers like that because what they inspire is panic. And that's not productive. Like, we don't do our best work or do our best thinking when we panic. No one does. This is exactly why I'm asking you the questions, Rohit, because I don't believe the numbers. I've seen the technology. I know it's unbelievable. It's extraordinary in so many ways. But I'm not convinced that it's going to be the end days the way that some of these numbers are being presented. And you're just the perfect person to be asking these questions because you marinate in this all day long. So I think the most essential question I have to ask you is, What advice do you have? So if we're going to be teaching school kids this, but if I'm out of college and I've been in my job for 10 years and I'm working 50 hours a week, how am I going to learn and understand how to use these tools? What's the best advice you have right now? The absolute best advice I have is to try it for yourself. Because I think that in general, and this is across anything, I mean, this is a broad statement, but I think it's true across anything. The more fear we feel or anger or outrage we feel, the less informed we typically are. And so we're basing that off of either being manipulated or only seeing one perspective. And I think that the solution to this is knowledge. You have to try these things for yourself. Like if you're afraid that ChatGPT is going to disrupt your job or the jobs of people who you're leading, but you've never tried it for yourself, you're not informed. You're just reading things and panicking. If you have tried it and if you have seen the potential of it and now you feel fear, at least it's based on knowledge, Mm -hmm. which means you could do something about it. 
right? But if you're panicking about something that you never tried and don't understand, you're wasting your emotional energy. Well said. Everyone, the heartbeat round with Rohit comes up next. And before we get to that, along with his final insightful thoughts, just a quick reminder that we're currently trying to stave off having another sponsor for the podcast. So if you'd like to show us some love and encouragement, there are different ways that you can do that. Please buy a copy of my book, Lead from the Heart. Invite me to speak at your company. Recommend our work to your friends. Sign up for our new Lead from the Heart training program. Any kind of support that you can show us that reinforces that this podcast is valuable to you, we would be forever grateful. We're human too, of course, and knowing that our audience really supports us is what gives us continued motivation to keep producing this show. And speaking of that, let's get back to it. Rohit, we're going to take a brief departure from our conversation and move into something we call the heartbeat round. So to help us learn a little bit more about you personally, I'm going to ask you several questions, but this time we want the answers to be instinctive and quick. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? Let's do it. Okay, good. Prediction about the future that we haven't already discussed that you're pretty certain will come true. Weather control. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're going to turn Detroit into Puerto Rico or what are you saying? No, no, no. Like uh, our ability as humans to impact what the weather is. But how greatly is what I'm asking. In other words, can you turn the Antarctic into, you know, the Sahara or? No, there is technology and, and experiments right now to refreeze glaciers. <laughs> right. What? I think that that sort of thing like is going to start getting more investment and more attention. Okay. These are supposed to be quick answer questions, but that's fascinating. I thought you wanted like a two word answer. Yeah, I did, but I'm sorry, but that's like mind blowing to me. All right. We'll have to have you back on to have that conversation. You asked. I know I did. Wow. <laughs> First app in the morning you check. Uh, Instagram, maybe. Quality you consider most essential to your personal success? Lack of judgmentalism. <laughs> hmm. One book that should be required reading for every human being alive? Einstein's Dreams. Something people would be surprised to learn about you? I am a drummer. Oh, very good. Well-known leader you think has the pulse on the future or is indeed ahead of it? Uh, Queen Rania of Jordan. And why specifically? because she has a very human perspective and cares about people first and not technology first or her own ego first. The trait you admire most in other people? Kindness. Greatest piece of advice you've ever received? That I have more impact on other people than I realize, whether they know me or not. So every interaction is an example of that. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Learning a foreign language. Which one? Portuguese. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? Emotional intelligence. Cultural value every organization should have. Um, lack of ageism. <laughs> um, that's good. And your synonym for the word heart. Love. Wonderful. These are great. <laughs> the first one kind of stunned me, so apologize for being thrown off my game here. But that's uh, good. Okay. I got to be non obvious, right? To stay <laughs> right? on. Yeah. Day, so. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so very much for going through that with me. No, this is great. Thank you. Before you go, my final question for you is what's a trend about the future that we've yet to discuss that would have the greatest interest to our leadership and future of work focused audience? 
Yeah, one trend that we did not talk about from the book is something we called stealth learning. And it was the idea that education and learning at any age is much more likely to come from very unexpected sources now. So everything from the typical sort of read a book or take a course through to video games, experiential moments, real life events, these are going to be much more the space that people start to learn from. And you're seeing it with, I mean, TikTok, for example, their entire marketing campaigns is, you know, hashtag learn on TikTok. And it's all about how they're not just dance videos that kids are watching on TikTok. It's like videos about real things that they're learning, like real skills or real knowledge that they're getting from these short 30-second videos. And it seems weird to people of an older generation that that's how people could be learning. But that is increasingly what's happening. And I think that the applications for any leader of an organization are huge there because you always want your people to be learning and evolving. You don't just want them to get their degree and feel like, okay, I'm done. And so if you can have them learn in these unexpected ways and build skills and make these connections between those things, you can have a more informed workforce and people can be smarter, more creative and all the things that you want as a leader. So that's a trend I would start thinking about. So as you were talking, the idea of stealth learning almost interferes with, or I'm not so certain that it supplements a college education. So what, what's the future of colleges, universities, and given that, you know, some schools in this country are now close to $100,000 a year? What do you see as the future of the university of a four-year education, going away to college, that whole experience? Is that going to be transformed or will that be sustained over time? I think it is transforming right now. I think that if you pay attention to the people who are in the world of education, there's, there's a real divide in the schools that are able to charge that sort of tuition and continually get more students. And part of it is the brand value, that when somebody graduates from a certain college that people have heard of, you know, that elevates them in terms of seeking a job, having the network. And that still does happen. It still does matter. Like people will look at that place that they graduated from and say, oh, this has value. And then you have the schools that sometimes struggle but shouldn't because they're really teaching trade skills and they offer amazing job placement. I mean, there's so many categories. You have the predatory education mm. where they're charging a lot of money and they're giving you not much teaching value. Teaching nothing. Yeah, and are basically sort of manipulating. And so... There is sort of a shakeout happening between these, and, and sometimes it's hard for people. But I think that the college education and college in general is not going to disappear. But I think that as there has been in the past, there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. And the challenge for individual educational organizations is going to be to elevate themselves to a certain level. And the challenge for the students and their families who are considering where to go is to really weigh the benefit of spending a certain amount of money on that particular course versus doing something else or going somewhere different. Thank you. Rohit, you are, in my humble opinion, a marvelously clear thinker and equally excellent in articulating your ideas. And there were times during this conversation where I felt like, okay, he's reading my mind. He knows exactly what I'm asking for here, which as an interviewer, I really appreciate. So on behalf of my audience, thank you so very much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. I think you and I probably share a, a mindset in some way, which made this uh, a great conversation. So I really oh, appreciate it. I appreciate it. that. That's great. Thank you so very much. Take care. Okay. Bye, Roy. Bye. 
before we say goodbye, I want to thank my team. These include Mr. Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, Anna Boynton, and my producer, Eric Oz. And great thanks go to you for listening. We love producing this show and will continue as long as our audience keeps growing. Our theme song is Take the A-Train, a jazz standard written in 1939 by Billy Strayhorn that was the signature tune of the Duke Ellington Orchestra. And our version is performed by the masterful BBC Big Band Orchestra. And now I leave you with my two consistent reminders. One, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And two, love your people. This is Marcy Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Thank you.